What were Jesus' parents' names? Uh, Mary and Joseph. Very good. Yes, very good. I got that very one. good. And approximately how many years ago did he live? Oh, gosh. 250 million years ago. Who found the burning bush? Uh, Nixon? What happened in the fight between David and Goliath? The story. What they happened? got in a fight with rocks. Who won? Goliath. Who was swallowed by the whale? Okay, now I'm on the spot. Um, Joe. DiMaggio. Cain and. Abel. That's right. Who were they? Uh, sitcom. The Old Testament was originally written in what language? Um, isn't it Old English? Old English. Or Latin or something? Old script. How many apostles were there? Um, 40. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus sat with his apostles to eat and drink. The check was enormous. Good morning, Hope. Uh, welcome. Glad you're all here. Happy Christ the King Sunday. I know you all woke up thinking about that, or maybe not, but that's okay. That's a tradition, and it's a good tradition because it points us to the one who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and that's why it's important that we know what the Bible says. Uh, Jay Leno, uh, this was, you know, 10 years old or so, went out jaywalking, as they called it, and he asked people these questions about the Bible, and those are some of the funnier answers, I think. But hopefully, if nothing else, it makes you feel like, well, at least I know the Bible better than some of them. Uh, and that's okay. But here's, here's the thing today. I, I want to make sure you hear this. The reason we want to know the Bible is not for the sake of knowing the Bible and getting right answers, you know, if some man on the street comes up and interviews us. The deeper reason we want to know what the Bible says is it points us to the one who saves. It points us to Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said... God's word, the Bible, is like a cradle that holds the Christ child. It isn't our savior. The Bible by itself doesn't save us. It points us to the one who does. And that might sound like we're splitting hairs, but it's important because sometimes the Bible, uh, other things can, can start to distract us from the reality that we worship Jesus and nothing less. Here's some other uh, surprising things that are not found in the Bible. I wrote about this a few months ago in my weekly letter to Hope. And so this will be a refresher for those of you who read that and, and um, an introduction for those of you who didn't. This is just kind of a taste, a flavor. Here, here's something that's not in the Bible that everybody thinks is an apple in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that's legend, that's tradition. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it was an apple. It could have been a pear or a pomegranate or a deep fried peach on a stick. We, we don't know if it's in the Iowans. Um, here, here's another one that there's halos on angels. Uh, that's just sort of us. We've made that up. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest angels have halos. Now, when you get to heaven someday, if angels have halos, you'll be like, Pastor Mike was wrong. Uh, that's not the point. They, they might have halos. There's just no angels in the Bible with halos. That's legend. That's tradition. The word Jehovah, the name Jehovah. How many of you ever heard the name Jehovah before? Raise your hand. It's going to be a lot. Um, Jehovah is not a name for God. 
Everybody thinks, a lot of people think that it is, but it's actually a misunderstanding taking the consonants of the word Yahweh, which is the name God gave to Moses in the burning bush, and the vowels for God's, uh, another name for God in the Old Testament, Adonai. And, and it blends, for some unknown reason, blends them together and thinks that that works. But those vowels and consonants are never blended together in the Bible. So Yahweh is a name for God, Adonai is a name for God, Jehovah is not a name for God. Now God is a gracious God, and I'm sure if you have a habit of praying, oh Jehovah God, that God's going to be like, that's kind of funny, I mean she or he means well, but that's not my name. Be like calling me Stuart, I mean that's just not my name. Uh, and I'll, I'll love you anyway, and it's okay, but it's not God's name. We could do better than that. That's why it's kind of important to know the Bible, it clarifies things. Uh, here's another one coming up to Christmas that there were three kings at the stable on Christmas Day there are three kings at the stable on Christmas Day in our nativity scenes but that's not in the Bible there's no stable in the Bible it's the basement room of a house or a a cave at the bottom of a house where the animals hang out Uh, there's not necessarily three kings there might have been three they're not kings We, we are almost 100% sure of that, biblically speaking. That's tradition. That's legend. There could have been 14 of them. There could have been 43. There could have been two. There's no number that's named. The reason we tend to traditionally say that there were three magi is because they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But maybe eight of them brought gold. Maybe they went together on it. I don't know. And and, and some others. so, So here's the fun part of this. If you have a bunch of nativity scenes at home, now you can mix and match. Pull out the extra magi from the other sets that you don't know what to do with and say, we got 14 magi this year. It's going to be a big Christmas. It's actually biblical, maybe, to do that. We don't know. Here's something else, Christmas, that always just kind of fingernails on the chalkboard for me. That When people suggest, well, Mary was a young teenager and Joseph was a much older man. First of all, that's creepy, all right? <laughs> And secondarily, it's not biblical. According to first century Jewish custom, Mary and Joseph were first century Jewish people living in that particular part of the world. It would be almost certain that they were very close in age. What a relief, right? So no more nativity scenes where Mary's 13 and Joseph's 52. That's just weird. And it's not in the Bible. Here's some more things that are not in the Bible. Pipe organs, pews, pulpits, steeples, liturgy, hymnals, Lent, Advent, dressing up for a 60-minute service. Nothing in the Bible says it's 60 minutes. That's you. (laughs) And sermonettes make Christianettes. Pastors wearing special robes for Christian worship. Jesus having long hair and a beard, despite what Grandpa Chip from Talladega Nights says. That's not in the Bible. A personal relationship with Jesus, an altar call, the sinner's prayer. None of it's in the Bible. Traditions. And a lot of those are really good traditions. I could go on and on and on. There's more. A lot of those are really good traditions. And where those traditions help get the Jesus thing going for you, that's good. There was a Broadway musical, hit, smash hit, Tony Award winning Broadway musical in the 1970s called Fiddler on the Roof. It went back in time and told the story of a a humble uh, Jewish village and how they lived and how the foundation for their life together was the opening song, the big hit song. I think it was a top 40 hit even in the 1970s. And the name of it, Tevye would sing it about his community. He would say, the thing that holds us together is tradition. Oh, some of you remember. Tradition! 
I'm not going to sing it. Watch it. It's better up here. Well, we stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! of our traditions we've kept our balance for many many years here in Anatevka we have traditions for everything how to sleep how to eat how to work how to wear clothes for instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Traditions, according to Tevia, they're essential. They're, they're the core. They, they, from, from season to season, year to year, generation to generation, even century to century for this community, it's tradition that holds us together. It's tradition that, that keeps our balance. It's tradition that keeps us from falling into the ditches. Tradition. You know, watching that for about the seventh time this week, uh, it, it makes me realize the person who wrote the tune for that song was like, really did a great job, right? And then gave it to the person who's writing the lyrics, and they're like, ah, tradition. I'm just going to write that word over and over and over again. So there's one word. Stand firm, the Bible says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Lifting up traditions is a, is a blessing, is a good thing. Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. But be careful. Be careful, the Bible goes on to say in the totality of Scripture. We can't just focus in on one verse, but we, we, we do a, a survey of verses. So tradition can be a good thing. Where it increases your faith, where, there, where it strengthens you, where, where, where it gets you ready. Like, like Thanksgiving traditions, right around the corner. I'm so thankful to be one of your pastors. I'm so grateful to be uh, uh, in, in community with you as sisters and brothers in Christ. We get to do life together. I'm grateful. I'm so thankful for you. And I know I speak on behalf of the entire staff here. You're an amazing church. I'm looking out the window this morning as I'm praying and getting ready for worship. And, and, and it's bright and early. I mean, this is, it's still dark out. It's zero dark 30 or whatever, and, and people are carrying in these bins for our Advent project. 
And I know that's happening at all of our campuses, wherever you are, Waukee or Grimes and in Ames and Ankeny today. And they're having big giving campaigns. They're buying land and expanding their ministries. And Hope Elam just celebrated their first anniversary. Why do we do it? It's traditions. We celebrate anniversaries. We mark things. Traditions can be good, but see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. In other words, Christ is greater than your traditions. If you want to have a healthy faith, if you want to have a, a, a right relationship with the God who made you, where traditions point you to, to that healthy relationship with God, that right relationship, embrace them. It's a core value here at Hope. We say we worship God, not tradition. Traditions are important in the way we worship God, where they help us, where they move us. We have traditional services. We have contemporary services. All of our services of all of our campuses have different flavors. Every single one has its own kind of atmosphere, and they provide that beautiful variety. So traditions can be good things, but they can also get in the way. Jesus says this in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 15, he says, Who, why do you, he says this to religious leaders, by your traditions, which you've made too important, violate the direct commandments of God? And it's not just them back then, it, it can be us today. How many of you grew up Lutheran? I'm just curious. It's about a third or a quarter of this church, that's about right. And the rest of you are saved and we're Lutherans, we're working on it. But this is, this is the hymnal I grew up with. Maybe some of you are old enough and grew up Lutheran, and you remember this too. We affectionately referred to this as the Red Book. Officially, it's called the Service Book and Hymnal. And I was pretty sure as a kid growing up, this is the hymnal Jesus used with his disciples. <laughs> like, this was the one. This is the only really true way to worship. It had the best hymns in it and the liturgy, and we would do it every week. And it was tradition. And then in 1978... This newfangled green hymnal comes along called the Lutheran Book of Worship. And I'm a junior high kid, and I'm telling you, in our particular congregation, it was like a mutiny. It, it was chaos. We were like, well, they've changed things. They, they changed a couple of lyrics on some of the classic hymns, and the, the tunes and the liturgy aren't like they were in the original, even though there was about 82 hymnals before this one. This is the one that, that we know, and so this is the one that's right, and anything else is wrong. And then along comes another new hymnal along the way, and it's red again, although the liturgical purists who produced this will tell you it's cranberry. And so this is now evangelical Lutheran worship, and, and on and on it goes. And, and we use this. We use this hymnal in our traditional service every Sunday in the chapel. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that, because for some folks, it gets the spirit moving in their hearts and souls and minds. That's good tradition, if that's your story. If it's not your story, that's okay. It doesn't have to be. It's not like the way we worship or the style we worship with or the songs that we sing. Be careful with this. Even Whatever room you're in right now, even if you're by yourself, be careful to realize that worship is about substance over style. It's not about how we worship nearly as much as who we worship. And whatever style of worship, whatever songs, whatever way we do it, whatever it is that increases your relationship with God, increases your faith, that's the tradition you embrace. 
Weekly worship is a tradition, but it's more than a tradition. It's a commandment, not a polite suggestion from God. Because he wired us up for this. He, wi- he created us to praise, the Bible says. He created us to do, we need to do this. Whether we deny it or not is really irrelevant. We don't get to vote on how God made us. God made us with a need. We created us to praise. We have a need to, we're wired for worship. And so we do this. It's a good tradition. It's a good habit to get into on a regular basis, because then we have opportunities. God has opportunities to to get a hold of us so that we can hear his word, so that we can pray together, so that we can be in the fellowship, the community of believers, sisters and brothers in Christ. Good traditions, but also God's command, God's law. There are holiday traditions too. This Thanksgiving, my wife and I will travel to Chicago like we always do for Thanksgiving to hang out with her side of the family, which is slightly less goofy than my side of the family. They're awesome. And this is the annual, this I think was last year, year before, Thanksgiving photo that we take at uh, Uncle Herbie Schmeiser's house. And he is the sausage king of Chicago. He has a Schmeiser's meat market. That Ferris Bueller line, we're pretty sure was about him. Uh, So we, we gather together cousins and family members and extended family. And since he's a, you know, meat guy, pretty good bird. I mean, it's a a feast. It's this glorious, wonderful thing. And every year it's tradition that we take this picture. And I can tell you that while this picture here is pretty much Instagram worthy, except Rena was distracted over here, Aunt Rena. Other than that, it's, it's pretty, there were 72 other versions that were train wrecks. And it took about 45 minutes to get this photo together because of all the different personalities involved. Sally's cousins, and then some of the elders get mad at the cousins, and the cousins keep kind of mouthing off, and then it goes both ways. And then there's a grumbly guy in the back row. Not me. I'm not going to say who. I'm going to protect the guilty in this case who the whole time is saying this is a... This is a horrible waste of time. This is terrible. Let's just go have a beer and let's just eat. This is what we should be doing. This this is the way Thanksgiving's supposed to be. (laughs) And then we all smile. (laughs) And everything's perfect because it's tradition. There are some traditions that are good, spiritually speaking, and then there are some that distract us from the stuff that's going to give us life, new and eternal it's not just our religious traditions, the way we worship or don't worship. It's, it's the way that we approach morals, the rules of the road, biblically speaking, the commandments, the laws. If we make that the main thing, if we minimize Christianity to the point of saying the most important thing about Christianity is it teaches some rules for living. We've totally missed the point of the Bible. There's no way a fifth grader could read the Bible and say that's the main point. There are rules, and they will bless us in our relationships with other people and commandments and laws, and they're still on the table, and they still apply, and they're going to they're gonna bless us, but they are not the main thing. But if that becomes our tradition, then we start getting self-righteous, and then we fall into legalism, and we get lost in these traps of thinking that I'm a better Christian than somebody else who lives across the street from me because I follow these rules, and that person doesn't follow these rules. So therefore, I'm a little bit closer to God than that person. That's a distraction from the biblical truth. Truth is, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. We all need God's amazing grace. Every single one of us, like sheep, have gone astray, the Bible says. I mean, there's dozens of places the Bible repeats this same theme. 
Don't think that you can stand right before a holy God because of your human performance, because you're a rule follower, because you're more moral than your neighbor, or the person who lives on the other side of town, or the person who's two rows behind you right now and you're wondering, what are they doing in church? Traditions can trip us up in the same way the Bible, believe it or not, can even become something that gets in the way. It shouldn't be. And it's not the Bible's fault. The Bible is the living word of God. It's the inspired word of God. We have a nosebleed high view of scripture in this church. The Bible says what we believe and we believe what the Bible says. But we do not worship this book. We do not walk in and hold it up and have everybody, you know, hail the Bible, hail the book, any more than we say, well, God is somehow confined to just living in that altar. And so we all have to face it because that's the only place God can be. Biblically, the truth is God's with you wherever you go, 24-7. God is in that altar, absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with, 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 with humbling yourself before the altar of God or coming before the cross or, or going to the waters of baptism. God can do holy things in all those places, but God can do holy things right where you're sitting, wherever you are, whatever room you're in or car you're in, or you're outside watching a soccer tournament right now. Holy. God is with you. That's what this book says. But if we lose that, we get distracted so quickly and so easily. And we start to forget that the Bible's the cradle that holds the Christ child. That it's only the Christ child who grows up to become the king of all kings. Today's Christ the King Sunday. And so we remember that. We, we, we don't worship it though. We don't worship the tradition of Christ the King Sunday. We just take the opportunity to say this reminds us of who Jesus is. He's the one who has the authority, final authority, over life and death, over eternity, over heaven and hell, over all things. He is the king of all kings who bows down before no worldly force or ruler. He's the one we worship. And if your understanding of Jesus Christ is too small, if you've got Jesus in a comfortable box where Jesus isn't that big, you're missing the best part of Christianity. If the Bible and memorizing verses and, and getting answers right uh, uh, to Bible quizzes is your goal, you're missing the whole point of studying the Bible. It's to build up your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's to strengthen your faith. It's to draw you closer to the God who made you. So that you can move into a living relationship with this God that blesses you in, in the times of joy, in the times of sorrow, in, in the times of health, in the times of pandemic, in, in the times where emotionally you're on top of a mountain, in the times when you're, when, when you're being challenged by anxiety and depression, and everywhere in between. So Jesus comes along and he says this radical thing about the Bible, about the scriptures, and it's the last in our say what making sense of Jesus' most shocking statements. This sermon series that has been such an edifying thing for us as a church. Because it points us to what Jesus actually said instead of what Uncle Ned told us he said. You, heard, you search the scriptures, Jesus said, John 5, 39, because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. I'm the one who saves you, not the Bible. I'm the one who saves you, not your hymnals. I'm the one who saves you, not your preferences for how you like to worship. 
I'm the one who saves you. The relationship with me is the goal of the way you worship. The relationship with me is the goal of you studying God's word. The relationship with me is the reason you follow these rules for life, the, the moral the, uh, commandments that God gives us. To understand the radical kind of, uh, put this in focus, what Jesus says, his radical statement, but the scriptures point to me, we just need to back up to the beginning of the same chapter in John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to dive in there and spend the rest of the sermon in John 5. Jesus shows up with his disciples at a place called the Pool of Bethesda in the holy city of Jerusalem, and they think that this pool is holy too, that it has holy water in it. But Jesus is there to do a couple of things. One is to heal somebody who can't walk. And he's been sick for 38 years. And he comes to this pool of Bethesda because tradition has taught him that this water has healing properties. That it could heal him from his paralysis. That he, he, if, he, if he times it just the right way, because tradition taught in Jesus' day that at this pool of Bethesda every once in a while... An angel from heaven comes down and bathes in this pool, maybe even without being seen. But the, reason, the way you know there's an angel, tradition taught, in the pool bathing is the waters start to stir. They start to move on their own in some sort of glorious, miraculous way. Things start to bubble up. And then legend and tradition had it that the first sick person to get into the water when the angel was in the water would be instantly healed. Jesus knows this tradition, and he knows the problems with it, because it's a distraction to the one who actually does the healing. Just like if you start to worship a faith healer who maybe has the gift of healing instead of the Jesus who gives her or him the power to heal, you're distracted. It's Jesus who heals. It's Jesus who saves, not preachers and church leaders and and healers, we don't do it. We point you to the one who does. So Jesus is there to teach as well as heal. And so as he comes in and he sees the man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, he's got an incredible life-changing gift for him. Look close and you'll see it. Do you want to be healed? Who are you? We'll get to that later. But my question remains. Will you take me to the water? <laughs> Look, I'm having a really bad day. You've been having a bad day for a long time. So? Sir, I have no one to help me into the water when it's stirred up. And when I do get close, the others step down in front of me. And so... Look at me. Look at me. That's not what I asked. I'm not asking you about who's helping you, or who's not helping, or who's getting in your way, 
I'm asking about you. <laughs> I've tried. For a long time, I know. And you don't want false hope again, I understand. But this pool, it has nothing for you. It means nothing. And you know it. But you're still here. Why? I don't know. You don't need this pool. You only need me. So, do you want to be healed? So let's go. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Free to walk, like he said. Don't forget your bed. Why does this matter? Because you're not coming back here. That life is over. Everything changes now. Everything changes now. What a beautiful scene. It's so well done. It's from a TV series, independently made, self-funded, called The Chosen. And they continue to make more and more episodes as long as the funding continues to come in. It's just incredible because you're almost like an eyewitness. You're drawn into it. The trappings of traditions and all the other stuff is just set aside. Here's Jesus speaking directly to this man. Just right out of the pages of John 5. Just the way it's written. And you get this view of what it would be like to be one of his disciples and watch this and witness this. Everybody's celebrating, right? Everybody's praising God. The man who's healed certainly is. The disciples certainly are. Everybody should be jumping up and down in celebration and praising God. Except there's a group. Did you catch them? Just, just for a few seconds in that clip? They're the religious leaders, the temple priests. And they're upset because Jesus didn't heal according to their tradition. To Sabbath. Our law says, as we narrowly and wrongly interpret it, that you're not supposed to give the blessing of healing to somebody who's sick on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. And not only that, they go after the man who's healed because they say, well, you're holding a mat. That's a work. It's a lot of labor that you must be holding that heavy mat. So you're committing a violation against God. 
This is the problem when traditions become bigger than Jesus. When they, come, they become bigger than the miracle, don't miss the miracle in your life that God has for you. Don't miss what God has for you. Then they go after Jesus and they start harassing him and saying, you're not following our rules. You're not doing it the right way. And Jesus tells them, that's when Jesus responds by saying, you know, you search the scriptures looking for eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And then over and over again, Jesus says the same thing. Oh, I know there's a lot of so-called religious scholars who get on TV on these documentaries, and maybe you've seen them, and they throw out all these questions and these doubts, and they say, well, you know, Jesus never himself claimed to be God. Those are just his followers. Those are just people who later on, you know, maybe a generation or so later, they wanted him to be God, so they just said that he's God. They just slapped that title on him. But Jesus himself knew that he's just a carpenter's kid from Nazareth, a rabbi, a teacher, so, so somebody who had a vision for what life is supposed to be. But that's it. Let's not get out of control here. In other words, let's keep Jesus in our comfortable box where we get to tell Jesus who Jesus is, where we put the same restrictions on him, even though he's God, that you can't put on God, because we're more comfortable with it. Jesus can't break the laws of physics, even though God invented the laws of physics. Jesus can't suspend those. He can't do miracles. So we'll just kind of omit those parts of the story. Maybe you've heard these religious scholars or, or read their books. They're all over the place. But here's what I don't get. Have they not read what the Bible testifies to? John chapter 1 verse 1 says, The Word was with God in the beginning and the Word was God. By verse 14 we learn that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And his, he's full of grace and truth, the Bible says. And his name is Jesus Christ. It's the birth story in John chapter 1. And back up, then we realize, oh my goodness, John, the very first verse says that this word Jesus was not only with God, but was God. Later in John's gospel, Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. The temple priests are pushing, harassing, going after Jesus because he doesn't fit into their box. And Jesus tells them, before your hero Abraham was even born, I am, and I am, ego me in the original Greek is the exact same phrasing that God uses in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament in the burning bush. When Moses says, what's your name? What will I tell people your name is? God says, my name is Yahweh. In Hebrew and in English, translation, my name is I am. You know me by who I am. So for Jesus to stand up and use that same name for himself... He's calling himself God. He says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. Five other times in John's gospel, he says these I am statements. Same title, same name God gave Moses. This is who I am. I'm the bread of life. I'm the gate to eternal life. I'm the good shepherd. And on and on it goes. I am. You say, oh, well, that's the Gospel of John. That was written later. What about the earlier Gospels? You know, the ones that were written right after Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, like the Gospel of Mark, the first one. Mark chapter 14, verse 62. Jesus responds to Pontius Pilate on trial. Who are you? And Jesus said, are you the one? Are you the Messiah, the anointed one of God? I am. My name is God. My name is Yahweh. 
predating even the Gospel of Mark are some of the Pauline letters, the epistles in the New Testament that he wrote to the early Christian churches. And he testifies to the fact that Jesus is God. Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. But he was God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul goes on to say, Our great God and Savior, his name is Jesus Christ. He's not just Savior, he's God. First Peter, not just Paul, but Peter too before the Gospels are written, says, the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God. These are, these are his followers. And so we have this before us, and we have this story, and we have these traditions. And what I want to encourage you to do today is look for this part in the middle that I haven't named yet. I asked you before you watched that video clip of John chapter 5, the man being healed, I said, look close, and you'll see the gift that Jesus gave him. And the obvious one you don't have to look close at. It's the miracle. It's the physical healing. He got up and he walked. Jesus has the power to heal him and he's healed. The water has nothing for you, Jesus says. I do. The water can't heal you. The holy water you get from a TV preacher, the rag that you buy from a radio preacher says this is a miracle rag and if you buy this rag, it's going to heal you of your illness. You don't need the rag, Jesus says. You don't need the water. You need me. And that's what Jesus gives. Because here's how John's gospel is laid out. Let me just say this as as an English lit major from college who just loves the way literature is laid out sometimes and how when you read it, sometimes you read it and and you get it, but then when you peel back some layers, you realize there's a whole other ecosystem of stuff going on here. That's the way John's gospel reads from start to finish. And I want to point you to an example of that as we wrap up this sermon today. So here Jesus comes and heals this man, gives him miracles. He goes on to say, I have the authority to do that. He he proves. He doesn't just say it. He shows it. The water doesn't have the authority to do that for you. The pool of Bethesda, I do. Christ the King Sunday, I'm the king of all kings. I'm, I'm the ruler over your physical ailments. Pause button. Because whenever I preach on healing prayers, I realize I'm preaching to some people who are like, this is so hard to hear. Because you've prayed and you've prayed and we've prayed for you or for your loved ones. And to date, no miracle. No healing. To be fair, we hear reports and stories about healings and miracles in this church Hardly a week ever goes by. Why don't we lead with that? Why don't we put a super hot breath? We talk about it. We don't hide it. But we don't make it our main thing, do we? We don't lead with it because Jesus doesn't lead with it. It happens. God heals. But, but why is it that Jesus healed just that one man when there were clearly a bunch of other men and women around the pool of Bethesda that day? Why didn't he just heal them all? How come he doesn't do miracles of healing for all our prayers? How come it, it, it seems selective? How, how come it's, are those people better than the other people? No, the Bible's clear on that. It's a mystery. We don't know why. But I want you to hear me if this is a struggle for you. It's a struggle for me too, truth be told. One of the people in the Thanksgiving picture was Sally's brother. He will not be in the picture this year. Because he died of Lou Gehrig's disease. 
since the last time we took a Thanksgiving picture. And we prayed, and we prayed, we prayed for miracles, we prayed for healing, you prayed, a lot of you did, thank you. And those prayers drew us closer to God. Those prayers drew us closer to God. Don't miss that. I know it seems like the subplot. Trust me when I tell you, it's the main point. Those prayers drew us closer to God. The God, lest we forget, who is with Joe, Sally's brother right now, and is with our family as we gather together for Thanksgiving this Thursday in Chicago. And two days later, we're finally, because of COVID, going to be able to have his funeral. And God will be with us. And God will be with Joe. Because Jesus Christ is the king of all kings. And he looks face to face at Joe's death. And he says, because you belong to me by God's amazing grace. And you put your trust in my death to put to death your sin. And my resurrection to raise you up to a new life. Because you're joined to me. Because you've got me. Because I am the resurrection and the life for you, Joe, you will live forever. Prayer's answered. Oh, I know God doesn't always give us what we want for right now, but here's the thing about that man who was paralyzed who started to walk. He ended up dying, and he needed a bigger miracle. He needed something more. So I know, I know it's not easy, but you keep, let's, we keep praying because where else are we going to turn? Holy water? Miracle rags? Or Jesus Christ? What's the point of our prayers? What's the point of us worshiping God? What's the point of us living out a moral life? What's the point of us doing these things? It is to point us to the one who says all the scriptures point to me. Even the miracles point to me. And the authority of heaven points back to me. Because what you get here is salvation. New life. Oh, it's not going to fit because I'm not a perfect preacher. New life for you. Eternal life for you. New and eternal life for your loved ones. The miracles are great. The mountaintop worship moments are great. You know where you get the goosebumps. You're like, oh, this just feels so holy. This is so great. The love you feel in your small life group community within the church. It's so great. It is, it is, it is. The, the moral life that you live, the new life that you live because of it, the, the way you make decisions about what you're going to do and not do, it's great. The greatest thing is Jesus. The greatest thing is the relationship God wants to have you. The whole point of your religion is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And where it's good and where your traditions are good, it enhances that. And where it needs to be set aside, it becomes a distraction to that. Don't miss the miracles. I mean not the ones that seem to be on the surface. I mean the big miracle. I mean the miracle of new and everlasting life. This is what Jesus said. He said a wanna and a tua and a threea, just like Lawrence Welk. Talk about a tradition. Do you remember Lawrence Welk, the Bubbles, the big band? <laughs> Some of you are so young. You should just YouTube Lawrence Welk. <laughs> I mean, it was torture for my brothers and me when I was a kid growing up. But for some reason, my parents liked him and my grandparents loved him. And so whenever they were over on Sunday nights, it was, hey, everybody, come on. I don't know why we were forced to watch it. It was like not optional. Lawrence Welk's on! We're like, oh no! <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> a one and a two and a three, right? Three. 
And then they'd start playing, and Grandma and Grandpa would give, like, commentary as they went. <laughs> kind of like me during a Bears game, tweeting with my sons. You know, he's filling in the blanks, adding color. Well, you know, the accordion player's a Lutheran. <laughs> they were so proud of that, you know. And, and, and Sissy and Bobby, they're such good dancers. And, and, and the guy with the falsetto voice who sings the solos, they love his voice, but they do not like it when he goes falsetto at the end. Why does he have to do that? Every time, the same stuff over and over again. A one and a two and a three, but it had a rhythm to it. There's a tradition. All right, let's close by digging deep into John chapter 5. A one, a two, and a three. Verse 20, after Jesus heals the man, and the Jewish leaders, the temple priests, start harassing him, verse 16 says, Jesus gives them a one and a two and a three. One, miracles. Two, resurrection, new life, salvation, everlasting life. Three, I have the authority. Watch this if you have your Bibles. If you don't, just listen in. Verse 20, the Father will show the Son how to do even greater works than healing this man. Miracles, one. Next verse, verse 21. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son, me, gives life to anyone he wants. Two, salvation, resurrection. Three, I have the authority to do this because I'm not just showing up as a carpenter's kid from Nazareth. I'm showing up as the creator of the universe. I'm showing up in the mystery of the, uh, of the duality of, of who Jesus is. Well, there goes my marks. Next sermon, who knows where I'm going. <laughs> a three, a verse 22, the father judges no one. Instead, he's given the son absolute authority to judge. And to bring miracles. And to save this world. One thing that I've learned for sure during this pandemic is how essential faith is. You know, we have a lot of talk. What's essential? What's essential? What's essential? Who's essential? Jesus Christ is essential. Above all else. Here's, Here's what I've learned. Those who had a relationship with God or a religion about God that was based more on traditions and, 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 and nostalgia and, and going through the motions and coming to worship and rating a record. I like it, I didn't like it. Those people have faded away because they didn't put their roots down. They just had a surface kind of faith, if any at all. Those of you who are here, whatever place you're in, room you're in right now, campus you're at, location, local site, online. Those of you who had a deeper faith, had your roots down in the deep, rich soil of God's amazing grace, knew that religion was for the sake of a relationship, knew the Bible was to point you to Jesus, knew the things that we do on a regular basis, our traditions, the morals that we live out, the whole thing was all for the sake of this relationship with Jesus Christ or because of this relationship with Jesus Christ. You've grown a lot deeper. Because that's what suffering does. That's what hard times do. And you've realized you stand on a firm foundation. You're not on sinking sand. 
So you could let go of everything else, but you will not let go of what's in the box here. The salvation, the relationship with Jesus Christ. The miracles, yes, God, heal our world. Yes, God, heal the people who are sick. Yes, God, please, we pray for that, and we expect to see it. And you alone have the authority to do it, but it all points to this. So listen to me, church. You keep the faith. And if you've just come to it, because during the midst of this pandemic, you're like, the traditions of this world have nothing for me. They can't fix this. They can't seem to make right everything that's gone wrong. I'm going to need something more. I'm starting to realize we're all mortal, some of the world says. I'm starting to realize that there may not be a victory here that our world can produce for us. I'm starting to realize that this chaos that we're living in, the, the, the divisions, all this stuff, maybe there's no healing for that. But there is a God who showed up in the person of Jesus Christ and he breaks through with light for your darkness and he breaks through with life for your death and he breaks through with hope for your despair and his name is Jesus. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus, church. Put your faith in him and keep your faith in him everything everything that's good everything that's good points to him Jesus Christ a one and a two and a three you thought that was just once verse 25 John's gospel hits it again Jesus says I assure you there's going to be a miracle where the dead will hear my voice miracles next verse verse 26 I have the same life-giving power to raise people from the dead that your Father in heaven has, too. And three, next verse, verse 27, God has, the Father has given the Son the authority to judge everyone because I am the Son of Man. A one and a two and a three. A two times? Oh, let's just go three. Verse 28, don't be surprised, Jesus says, I'm telling you, the miracle is coming. The dead will hear my voice. Verse 29, they will be raised to experience eternal life, salvation, number two. Verse 30, and I have the authority to judge. So where do we turn? We turn to the one who is, was, and always will be. We turn to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Go to the last screen, Mary, if you would. It all points to Jesus. The Bible, creation and the fall, the exodus, the law and the prophets, John the Baptist, the gospels, the, the, the nature of Jesus, his compassion, his character, his teaching, his miracles, his healings, the people who were healed, it all points to Jesus. The Holy Spirit, Paul and the apostles, sin, death and evil and our need to overcome those enemies. Jesus is the way, truth and life, the faith, hope and love that God gives through Jesus. Apocalyptic prophecies, the coming kingdom, the assurance of new and eternal life. You can't get it without Jesus. Where your religion helps you in your relationship with Jesus and allows Jesus to be everything that he is, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the way, the truth, and the life, embrace that. Where it causes you to get distracted from the one who will save you and all your loved ones, it's time to let that go. You keep the faith, Hope. Together, let's stand and sing. Hope has a name. And his name is...